0: Dear Father, we are thankful for this wonderful epistle, uh, the letter from John, uh, probably to the Church of Ephesus. We thank you that uh, we have this preserved for us, that we can learn uh, how we can have fellowship with you and how we can grow into deeper intimacy with you. Uh, We pray that uh, by the Spirit we might come to understand the depth and breadth of the doctrine taught in this passage that we might, uh, by the Spirit, apply it to our lives. pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. We continue on with our study through the first epistle of John. We're in our first series in John, out of uh, three in the first epistle of John, and then we'll have a practical application in his two letters. We're focusing on three doctrines in this first part, life light and love we have uh, progressed from life to light and now we enter into john's section on love where we're not just in fellowship with god but we grow in intimacy with him so the title of this morning's message is walk in love as a reminder of what we have studied already i know it's been three weeks since we've been in john we want to remember the faith rest walk of the believer in this dispensation of the church. We cannot take care of our sinfulness on our own. Only God can do that. We can't ignore it. We can't deny it. These, these will not solve the problems of fellowship. But letting God's word reveal our sin and agreeing with God about its sinfulness And resting in the finished work of Christ for cleansing is the only way to have and maintain fellowship with him. Remember these three bad responses that we can have to our sin. We can say, yes, I sin, but it doesn't matter. I can still have fellowship with God while I'm in sin. This is not true. We can say, I I don't sin anymore. This is basically saying that the things that I do that are sinful are actually not sinful. This is lying about our sinfulness. The other option is we can say, I can't sin anymore. I no longer possess that capability because I have a new nature. Will these make God a liar? Or they make him out to be a liar? Because we still possess a sin nature. We have both natures just like Christ had a human nature and a divine nature, we still have a sin nature, as well as we have a divine nature. And depending on which nature we fuel, either the flesh fueling the sinful nature or the spirit filling the new nature, we are going to walk in accordance with that. So yes, we still have the capacity for sin. This is not a license for sin. But this is something that awaits the future removal from the presence of sin. And we have available to us all that is necessary in Christ to no longer walk by means of the flesh, but to walk by means of the Spirit. So the main idea for this morning, there is more to fellowship than just maintaining it. Remember verses 7, verses 9, and verses 1 through 2 of our previous sermon taught us means of maintaining that fellowship, especially verse 9 of chapter 1. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is more to that fellowship than just having it. There is also enjoying it. There is much joy to be had in the more intimate Uh, had, the more intimate our fellowship with God becomes. These verses tell us about God's love language and how we can grow more intimate with him. Now, this is something we're familiar with in human relationships. Not all people speak the same love language. Not all people appreciate gifts the same way others do or words of affirmation the way others do. God has a love language. Do we love him with his love language or do we rather Tell him how we are going to love him and tell him he better just be thankful for that. Fellowship is possible on the basis of commonality. Remember, we as sinful creatures in our sin nature cannot have fellowship with God. We must enter into that fellowship by means of the Spirit, energizing our new nature, because that is what we have in common with Christ. And it is only through the hypostatic union, the fleshly incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, that we can have anything in common with God. And this is how we can have fellowship with him. So as soon as we step out of walking by means of the spirit, we step out of fellowship because we step out of what we have in common with him. Jesus is the object of our fellowship, both with God and with other believers. Remember, church is not a social club. It's not a place we come to interact in our flesh. It's a place we come to interact with God. And as we do so, and we have our brothers and sisters in Christ beside us, also interacting with God, we are naturally drawn into fellowship with one another because we are in fellowship with God through Christ. So fellowship is practically growing in increased intimacy and partnership with among those whom you have commonality. And if you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith alone, by grace alone, we have common, we have commonality, a commonality that far surpasses being just human, but it enters into the realm of the eternal. This intimacy is found upon the object of fellowship with it, which is Christ and Christ alone. So now we move into this intimacy and knowledge. We learned how to maintain our fellowship. Now what do we do with that? There is a proposition that John makes, and just as he had three different uh, options that one could respond to fellowship before, now he has three different options in which one can respond to intimacy with God. 1 John 2, 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is God's love language, keeping his commandments, obeying him. What was What was the first sin that put us out of fellowship with God? There wasn't anything special about the fruit which Adam and Eve ate, but it was walking outside of God's will. God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. And what did they do? They ate, but that was breaking his commandment. That was the issue. They broke love with God. They walked outside of his will. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. In your English translation, there is a word missing. They will often do this because Hebrew authors will often just throw this uh, little particle chi in everywhere. It's the word and in Hebrew. I think they should keep it here in verse 3 because too often we separate this verse too far from verses 1 and 2. See, many, especially since... Uh, the uh, theologian Beza after John Calvin have taken the book of first John as tests of salvation. They chop it up into little pieces. they forget the truth. they forget the positional truth that we have in Christ. And they move on in every instance to say, and if you don't do this, you don't have salvation. if you don't do this, you don't have salvation. Well this is one of those verses where some will take it and say, well if you don't keep his commandments, you were deceived, you never had salvation to begin with. Well, this would disqualify every single person who has ever been saved. You see, they try to uh, make First John a little more forceful, a little more strong than they think it is. But in doing so, they have to diminish the sinfulness of sin and say, well, I keep his commandments most of the time. Well, that's not the commandment. It is to keep them all of the time. And if they followed the context of the verse and they rightly connected with that logical connector, verse three with verses one through two, they would see that our position in Christ is firm. It is eternal and it is secure. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's giving us an opportunity to avoid sin by resting in Christ, not in our own efforts to keep his commandments. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He took on the wrath of all of our sins, past, present, and future. And not only for ours, but for those of the whole world. Unlimited atonement. Every person who has ever been born has had his sins paid for by Christ already. And he receives that through believing, not through keeping his commandments, not through baptism, not through communion, by faith that Christ's death on the cross paid for your sins, that that was sufficient, that that was good enough, and that Christ rose from the dead, and this guarantees us new life as well. And this new life is not just a life waiting for us after the grave. This is a life that we enter into the moment we believe. How do we live that life? Well, this is what John is telling us. How we live that life that is firmly secured on the finished work of Christ. By this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, we have two words here I want to go a little deeper on we're going to start with know. What does it mean to know? This is the Greek word gnosko. There's two Greek words for knowing. One is oida and one is gnosko. Oida is the knowledge of facts. The knowledge of things. For example, I could say I know Greek. But I could say more truthfully, I gnosko. English. This is not just words on a paper that I can handle, but this is how I think. This is how thoughts and ideas form deep inside of me. So we might oida something, but when we ginosko something, it is a deep and intimate knowledge. You might know your cat or dog. You might think you ginosko them, but you probably oida them. You don't know what's going on inside their head. You don't know what makes them tick. But if you have a spouse, you learn this person so intimately. You ginosko them. You know them. They don't even need to speak, and you understand what they are thinking. This is the kind of knowledge that is being claimed here. This is experiential. Not just Factual. We know experientially that we have come to know him. Now, Greek is a very interesting language. It's very difficult to put into English because they don't handle their tenses the same way we do. We might say, I go or I went, and we understand that one is in present time and one is in past time. Greek does not encode its verbs with time. It encodes them with completion or incompletion. We call these imperfective, that which is incomplete, and perfective, that which is complete. Well here, this second no is not in the present tense, which is in uh, imperfective, it is in the perfect tense, perfective. And it is also a stative verb. It tells us about a state of something, not an action, not an outward activity, but an inward cognitive activity. When you put this kind of state of verb together in the perfect tense, it doesn't put it in the past. It makes it intensive. So this doesn't mean that we have come to know him in the past and that has present results, but it means that we have come to know him intimately. He is doubling down on this intimacy of knowledge. And once again, we get this conditional statement. We Remember these. Last time we had three different conditional statements. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. We have a condition and we have a result of that condition. Here those are reversed. We have the result first and then we have the condition. The result of keeping his commandments is growing into that deep and intimate knowledge of who he is. If we walk in obedience to his word, if we walk in that light, we let it reveal who we are and who he is. We come to understand not only his commandments, but his will and we can walk intimately with him. This is a third class conditional. Remember we have four different kinds of conditionals. First class conditional means it is likely true. The if clause is probable. Second class, The if clause is probably not true. This is a third class where it may or may not be true. It is ambiguous. Some who like to say that this is a test of salvation will say that all who are saved believers will, in fact, keep his commandments. Well, this is not what the Greek language is telling us. It is absolutely possible that one who is saved and firmly secure positionally in Christ May choose not to walk in intimate knowledge with Christ. May choose to take the salvation that they've been given and do nothing with it. Yes, they will be saved in the end, but they will have nothing to show for it. And they will have never experienced the joy of fellowship with God. Fourth class conditional is simply wishful thinking. It's not that either. This is possible. It is possible for us to keep his commandments. Now that is also something incredible because it's not by means of the flesh that we can do this, as we'll see as we go on in the verses this morning, but it is by means of the Spirit that we even have hope of keeping His commandments. You see, this is a huge difference between the law of Moses and the law of Messiah. The law of Moses was a ministry of condemnation because we were given the standard, we were given the rule, but we were given no power to do it. It was to show man his inability So that when Christ came on the scene and he kept the law perfectly, we could see his ability. In the law of the Messiah, we are revealed intimate knowledge about his will. We are given commands, yes, but it is not a law code. There were 613 different regulations in the law of Moses. It was very impersonal. If you want to know the law of Messiah, you study his scripture all of it. You don't have boxes to tick off. It's a relationship. It is the knowledge between a husband and a wife, a father and a son, not a king and his servant. We are called friends. We are brought close. And we are given, for the first time, power to do what he has commanded us to do. John 17, now we're going to refer back to the upper room discourse quite often. The upper room discourse is the soil in which 1 John is planted, and it grows into an elegant and beautiful flower, and that is not my metaphor. It's very cheesy, but I like it. John 17 says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Our positional salvation was taken care of in Christ. That gave us eternal life, but here he goes on to explain eternal life. This is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is one of those statements where we kind of scratch our heads a bit and move on, unless we really stop and camp on it for a bit. Kind of like Paul's famous, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's a lot of depth to that truth, but it takes us a minute to figure it out. Eternal life, yes, it is existing forever, but we can exist forever in either state, either in hell or in heaven. The life that is given to us is something dynamic. It is something altogether new. It is that close and intimate fellowship with God that will last into all of eternity. This is a gift that has been given to us. And here we see that it begins at salvation. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. How amazing is that? That we can know God. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How did he glorify God? He was obedient to God's will. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself in the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, as we progress through these verses in 1 John, we'll see that there is a progressive intimacy between keeping his commandments and keeping his word. There is something deeper about the second, something about mature and spiritual believer. Now they have come to know, once again, that perfective, stative verb, this deep intimacy that the disciples had arrived at by the time of the cross. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. So what is our intimacy with God? Intimacy goes beyond a mended relationship to a loving and reciprocal relationship. A new believer can immediately enter into fellowship with God. There is nothing you have to do but believe to have that fellowship restored. But intimacy increases with spiritual maturity. For eternity, we will grow deeper in intimacy with God, and this is eternal life. This is what we have to look forward to. What we get a taste of today, we get for all of eternity. We might as well start now, living in accordance with our position in Him, because our future is already so secure that it's often spoken of in the past tense because it is absolutely guaranteed. What is then the response? The one who says, I have come to know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Remember what John is confronting in Ephesus. A group of people who later came to be called Gnostics who taught that deeper knowledge is where salvation was found. They would have deep and secret knowledge that they would teach to these Christians, things that were not part of the apostolic doctrine. They would claim deeper intimacy with God because of this deep and secret knowledge that they had. John is saying, just look at them. They are not intimate with God. Because they disregard the things he says. Someone who is in an intimate relationship with God does not do that. Because someone who loves God does not do that. Now, loving God, again, is not a test of salvation, but it is a test of intimacy. So here we have a bad response to the opportunity for intimacy. Once again, we can bring God down to our own level. I can love God even while disobeying His will. This is not true. If you are disobeying, you are not loving Him. You are not speaking His love language. You are telling Him to just be good with whatever He gets. This will not increase intimacy. Imagine doing that with your father. Dad, I broke all the windows in the house. You're welcome. I thought it was time for some new ones, just helping you out there. Dad, I'm sorry. I pulled my sister's hair. She was annoying, and I thought it would shut her up. You're welcome. This is often how we treat God. It sounds ridiculous. It was just a white lie. I had to tell it because they wouldn't have understood otherwise. I needed them to walk in obedience with you, so I, I just fibbed a little. This is for God's glory, right? No, this is because we don't trust him. He asks us to walk in the light, having all things revealed by light. When we lie, we cast darkness. We're not walking in the light. We're not trusting him that he is the one doing it by his spirit, but rather we are trying to bring the result that we expect he should want by means of our flesh. This is not going to grow intimacy with him. Oops. Second response that one might have. The more I sin, the more I experience God's love. I'm giving him an opportunity to love me by showing me his grace. Again, it sounds ridiculous, but you know, some children disobey so that they will have the attention of their parents. It's not unreasonable that we think that way when we try to get attention from God. We like to live on the edge of fellowship so we can feel what it's like to be brought back in. These people never understand the depth of joy in continual and growing intimacy with God. I mean, I've been a young male before I've had rough goings with my parents. I've had weeks, months, and even years living on the edge of fellowship. But how much better I came to know both of my parents when I no longer lived on the edge of fellowship with them, but in continual fellowship, maintaining love, trust, growing deeper, learning how to love not just telling them to take what they get. Paul refutes this argument as well. Romans six, verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. The idea here is what a ridiculous solution. You must be insane. Do you think sin is freedom? Sin is a slave master. You'll be slave to one or the other. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Our position is secure. Why do we keep flirting with death when we have life waiting to be enjoyed through obedience? And so John says, this person who says he can have intimate, experiential knowledge of God without keeping his commandments, he is a liar. The words that he speaks are not in accordance with truth. They are opposed to truth. They are darkness. First John 1.10 was similar. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. His word is not in us, is not a synonym for this person is not saved. That might sound ridiculous after going through the context of these passages, but I had a commentary that actually said this. A very popular commentary. Most of us probably have this commentary, or perhaps this person's study Bible. I won't say who, but his name rhymes with John MacArthur. This is wrong. This is a test of intimacy. We try to scare people into obeying by telling them they're gonna lose their salvation if they don't. This isn't gonna help anything. This person's gonna try to do it by their flesh. God has not given us the opportunity to run with our tail between our legs, hoping by the skin of our teeth we'll get into heaven. He has given us that guarantee so that we have the freedom to grow in our relationship with him. What if your parent told you when you were a young child, if you ever lie again, I'm putting you up for adoption. You know it might work, but that's not going to grow the intimacy between this parent and child. Trust goes both ways. Because we can trust his finished work, we have freedom to grow in him. This person who says this is a liar. He does not know God intimately. The Gnostics did not have secret knowledge of God. The truth is not in them. You know, some of them may have been saved. Unfortunately, though, they abandoned the truth that was once preached through the apostles. This is not a statement about their saving faith. This is a statement about their intimacy. And they are leading others astray. They are devoid of the dynamic working of God's word in their life and conduct. That is what it means to not have the truth in them. Now we come back to this keeping his commandments idea. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is God's love language. It must be important. What does it mean? What commandments? What rules? What regulations? Well, John is very consistent. Paul is not as consistent. But with John, we can be absolutely sure of what he is speaking about he uses two different Greek words to talk of two different law codes. He uses entole for commandments. These are house rules, rules of family fellowship with God. This is not the word that he uses for the law of Moses. The law, which is rules and regu- regulations of a government, is the Greek word namas. When John tells us that we Love God by keeping his commandments. In no uncertain terms, he is not telling us to keep the law of Moses. John one seventeen. for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. These are in opposition to one another. The namas came through Moses, the antelay, come through Jesus. It is not a single law code, but it is the culmination of what we have learned through all those law codes, through all the dispensations, what we have learned about God's character. We cannot disregard the law of Moses for didactic purposes. We learn from it. But that is not the law code that we are under. John thirteen thirty four, Jesus tells his disciples in the very last evening of his life, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. This entele kine, a new, a fresh commandment, something different. Once again, this isn't for salvation. The next verse, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. This is how the outside world can look at us and know that we are intimate with God. You cannot look at someone and know whether they are saved. It depends on what they have said you have to take for granted if they say that they have believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that that paid for their sins, they may not have believed that, but we operate on the basis that that is true because saving faith is not experiential, it is positional. You don't feel salvation, but you can feel intimacy. You can see it. You can see the outworking in someone's life. But just because you don't see that does not mean the person is not saved. If they have put their faith in Jesus, if they have trusted in his work and not their own for salvation, the task then is not to get them to be saved, but to get them to grow in the truth of their salvation, something that is already true about them. Have them work that out into their lives. What does that mean? John drives it a little deeper. Verse 4 was about the one who doesn't keep his commandments. We might even say he doesn't even keep his commandments. Here he says, but whoever keeps even his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. We go from keeping his commandments to keeping his word. This is the difference between I did my chores, I'm going out to play, and the house is messy, let me help clean. One is keeping a commandment, the other is keeping his word. Knowing not just those commands that have been given in a command form, but knowing the heart and the will of God. We only know this if we read his word if we spend time in his revelation to us. We want to know him so intimately that we can see. The house is messy. Let's clean it up. John 14, 19, Jesus said in the Upper Room Discourse, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. This is a fascinating truth as well. Jesus was physically present on the earth, and he said, there's coming a time in which some people on this earth won't see me, but you still will. Because I live, you will also live. There's something about the life of Christ in that coming day that binds us together with him so that we can see him. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Fellowship with God through Christ because of the life that he now lives. And while the rest of the world does not see him, we do. Remember, this was the purpose statement that John made at the beginning of his epistle. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, for what purpose? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The apostles wrote to bring us into that fellowship that they shared with God. And remember Jesus said in his high priestly prayer that they have reached a level of spiritual maturity where they have come to know God. They are trying to bring us into that spiritual maturity with them. They are coming alongside weaker brothers in the faith and lifting them up. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Not just the apostles' joy, but our joy as well. This brings us into fellowship. Jesus continued, he who has my commandments and keeps them, is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and i will love him and i will disclose myself to him this is a reciprocal love we have plenty of evidence all throughout scripture that god loves us perfected love returns that love as we continue in that intimate walk with Christ. He will reveal himself to us. The more we know him, the more we will know him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? What's the difference? Right now, the whole world can see him. What will make the difference? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, going beyond commandments, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. This is not just given to the apostles. This is something they passed down to us through their word, this intimate fellowship. This could read as if it were spoken directly to you. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, this love then is perfected. When we keep His word, when we reach that level of spiritual maturity, where we are concerned for His will, where we desire to do what He wants. John 10.10 10 read, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life, the bare minimum, salvation, and also to have it abundantly, to enjoy it, to grow in it. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is how he brought us into that fellowship that union how he reconciled us to god to mend that relationship we see that christ loved us and we can see that in romans 5. for while we were still helpless at the right time christ died for the ungodly for one will hardly die for a righteous man though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we ever dreamed of reciprocating his love, he sent his love to us. Because he has loved us, we can love him, and we ought to. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So what then is perfect love? Perfect love casts out fear. What is perfect love? It is the goal of God's love towards us. Not just that we would be saved through his act of love on the cross, though that is among its most incredible results, but that it would reach its goal in an intimate and reciprocal love between God and man. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The intimacy of relationship is what is in view. When we are not dangling on the edge of fellowship, coming in and out constantly, then we can rest without being afraid. Rest without being afraid of punishment without being afraid of being chastised so that we might snap out of it, confess our sin, and return to fellowship. But if we live a life of growing intimacy, then we live a life without fear that Father is going to take the belt out. Isn't that a wonderful truth to live in? And by this, we know that we are in him. Now, some Bible translations, including the NASB, put a colon after this because they attach the second half of verse 5 with verse 6. It probably is just a summary statement of verses 3, 4, and 5. And then verse 6 is going to expand on what it means to be in him. This is an anaphoric in him, meaning it's looking up. It's not looking forward. By this, looks back at everything that he has just said. By this, we know that we are in him. The second claim, the idea of being in him is to abide in him. To remain, the Greek word meno, has the idea of a continuity, of a static. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Well, once again, how were we to do that? What does it mean to abide in him? John fourteen thirty one. Jesus says, So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And then he immediately enters into a discourse on abiding. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Discipline. If it is not bearing fruit, it is not walking in the Spirit, it is not remaining in the light, he's going to cut it off. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it. This is the idea of cleaning, Greek word kathairo, so it may bear more fruit. Now, there is hidden in this kathairo another Greek verb that may have part of the meaning in here. The last half, iro, means to lift up. Vines used to not be already lifted up, but they would grow on the ground and when a vine dresser, saw that a vine was producing fruit, he would lift it up onto a rock or onto a log so that it would get more sun and that it would be able to produce more fruit. But I don't think that is necessarily the idea here. I think it's the same idea that John gives us, but not in a metaphor, in 1 John 1.7. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He prunes sin out of us. The more we walk with him, the more we are able to grow with him. The longer we walk with him, the less we sin. This side of heaven will never be perfectly clean of all of our sins. We can't reach sinless perfection. We still have a sin nature. We still have the world all around us, the flesh within us, and the devil behind us. We'll see that passage next week. But he can cleanse us from those sins, continuing to prune us so that we might bear more fruit. John 15:3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so he says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Have you ever cut an apple branch off of an apple tree, laid it out on the yard, and wondered why it's not making apples? It's not attached to the trunk. If you cut a grapevine or grape branch off of the vine, would you be surprised that it's not bearing fruit? It's not the branch that makes the fruit. It's the vine that puts fruit out through it. We are vessels of his work. Anything we produce is just going to be filthy rags, no matter how good the intention. But if we are resting in him, powered by his spirit, like sap running through the vine into the branches, producing fruit. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and he dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now, once again, I won't say who, but somebody makes this a test of salvation. Fire is present. It must be hell fire, right? Right? because no other type of fire could ever exist but hellfire. Not true. This has nothing to do with hellfire. There is a judgment through fire that saved and secure believers will go through as well. The only difference is we have been made of such a pure quality by the blood of Christ that we will survive it one way or another. But those things which we have produced, or that have been produced through us, what of those will remain through the fire? That is the question. Because we are Christ's workmanship. That is perfected. That will pass through the fire unscathed. But our works, are those also Christ's workmanship, or have we tried to make something ourselves by the flesh? 1 Corinthians 3.10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So picture Paul's metaphor here. He has a foundation, a foundation for a building. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. When you're building, you can't build on any other foundation. That's the one you are positionally secured to. Whatever you build is going to be on that foundation. Now, if any man builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, hay, wood, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. Not hellfire, righteous fire, heavenly fire. tests the purity of our work and his work. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as though through fire. An unfruitful branch may be punished to the point of death. You know, we're not without teeth in grace theology. But the threat is never loss of salvation. But God does take believers home who are not abiding in him. Someone whose fruit becomes mangled and distorted ungodly. He is not going to let that continue to bear fruit because they are sons of righteousness. It is unbecoming, and it is harmful to the believer. The most gracious thing he can do is to take him home. But more likely, the branch that is cut off and tossed into the fire is simply speaking of rewards, It is almost certain that all believers will have some things that they think they did by the Spirit that were done by the flesh. I don't believe there is anyone who will pass through this judgment without loss of some reward. But that's not the point. The point is, have we rested in Him so that we have rewards at all? Have we continued to rest in Him So that these rewards have grown. As Mark taught, I believe it was last Sunday, about the necessity of persevering for rewards, not for salvation, so that we can have a throne, a a crown to cast at the feet of the Lord for his glory. Our works done apart from him in the flesh do not bring him glory, but works that are done. By him through us, bring him glory because he is working through us and his love is being perfected in us. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples, not saved believers, my disciples, growing in deeper intimacy. Just as the father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Same reason John is writing the epistle of John to the church of Ephesus, so that joy might increase. How then can we walk As he walks, we can't continue to walk in the flesh. What option do we have? If you remember back a couple of weeks when we talked about the importance of the hypostatic union, we said that one of those important reasons that Jesus must have come in the spirit was to be an example of how we are to walk. So, how do we walk like him? John testified, saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Now, Jesus was without a sin nature. He had a human nature and a divine nature, but he did not depend on his own divine nature for empowerment. He was empowered in his sinless human nature by means of the Holy Spirit all that he did was not by the power of the second person of the godhead but by the power of the third person of the godhead Matthew 12:22 we see where this is where Jesus ministry on earth came to a head when he was performing miracles that only god could perform only the messiah would be able to perform A demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They knew this was no regular prophet. No regular prophet could do this. The son of David, the promised Messiah, was the only one who they expected would be able to do such a miracle. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. The spirit which is working through Jesus, they said, is an evil spirit, king of the demons. Jesus responds, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is not saying, If I cast out spirits, By my own power because I am God. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. As if it weren't clear enough, he redefines it in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus performed his miracles in the body in a sinless nature, the same sort of new nature that he gave us alongside our sin nature. And then he indwelled us with the Holy Spirit so that we have power to walk like him. But this power does not do our will. When we pursue our own will, we are reverting to the sin nature. When we pursue his will, the new nature is energized by the Spirit, and good works can flow through the believer. The importance of the Incarnation, remember, for the past that he is a kinsman redeemer. He had to be a man to die for men. For the future, this earth was created for a human ruler, and he is worthy. He had to come as a human to take that throne. For the present, he gives us an example for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can and will work through the believer. Act Eight: you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Jesus promised to his disciples. So what is our obedience to him and how can we do it? How can we have fellowship with God? The cleansing of Jesus' blood, both justification and sanctification, but how can we obey God's will and grow in intimacy? We remain in fellowship, step one, abiding in Jesus, and we do what Jesus did in his flesh, depend on the Spirit to do the will of God. Step two. Galatians 5.16 I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. If you are walking in the flesh, you will not be walking as Jesus walked. If you are walking by means of the spirit, you will. The result of both, the result of walking in the flesh is fruit of unrighteousness, wood, hay, and stubble. It'll be burned up. There will be nothing to show for it. The result of walking by the Spirit is jewels, precious metals, and these will pass through the fire unharmed. All right, we are going to have to cut it short unfortunately, but I think we'll get through verse eight. Beloved, agapetoi, he is talking about love and he is addressing them as beloved. I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Oops. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in him and in you. How is it possible that it is an old commandment and a new commandment? It is an old commandment in the sense that John is not telling them anything new. This is something that they know already. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. Or as Jude put it, we have handed down the word once for all from the Apostles. That's a bad paraphrase, but you know what I mean. He is not changing the apostolic doctrine. He is not giving them a new principle. He is giving them the principle that they had been given ever since Christ first uttered it the night before he died on the cross. It is a new commandment. Once again, kainos. It is fresh, contrary to neos, which means brand new. And it is true, alethes, it is genuine, it is apparent in him and in you. It is revealed, you might say. John thirteen thirty four again, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. John is going to repeat this twice more in the epistle of 1 John and once in his second epistle. And you might say, well, that is an old commandment. It comes from the law of Moses. Where he said, you shall love your neighbor. But here's the difference, as yourself. It was impossible to love your neighbor, even as God loved you. Unless something changed about the human nature. In fact, this was hard enough. You might even say this was impossible. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by the Sadducees, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now this is law, the law of Moses. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's God's love language, right? Obeying him. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest, great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, speaking here almost a week before the crucifixion, a week before the cross, the cross upon which the law of Moses ended as well, told them what the law had said. On these two commandments depend the whole law of Moses and the prophets who wrote during the period of the law of Moses. It was about four days later, he gave them that new commandment. When there is a change in dispensation, some things change, some things are added, some things do carry over and other things are amplified or diminished. For example, look at the dietary codes through the different ages. From dominion or innocence to moral responsibility, The law code was carried over. It remained a vegetarian diet. But from moral responsibility to human government with Noah, the diet of humanity was expanded. It was amplified to include all things save for blood. From human government to promise, which we are about to enter into in March, we're going to look at the new dispensation of promise what had been given to Noah was carried over to Abraham. The greatest change occurred moving from promise to law with Moses, where they got a fully developed dietary code for the purpose of separating the Jews from all other people. For the purpose of breaking fellowship between them and the nations so that they might have fellowship with God. But moving from law to grace, that law code was wholly terminated. And it went back to the dietary code of Noah. All things save for blood. Blood is the one thing that has never been given to us to eat. That is food. So this is something here that is expanded. The law of Moses was perfect but it was a ministry of condemnation. Laws without power. The law of Moses, or the law of Messiah, is absolutely perfect, because it is the will of God. And along with it comes power to do that. And so the law is amplified. It is increased. The second most important commandment to love your neighbor as yourself has become, love your neighbor even as... I have loved you. John fifteen twelve. this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. If you are my friends, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. Why? because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. The Jewish understanding of the ages, at the time when Jesus arrived, was that there was the present age and the age to come, an age of darkness and an age of light. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus answering a question about marriage and uh, reincarnation. Nope. Resurrection. (laughs) Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age And the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Two ages. The Jews understood that present age of darkness and the age to come, the kingdom. But embedded in there was a mystery age, an age of the dawning of the light. Where the resurrection life was already present in the world, but it had not dominated the whole world as it will in the kingdom and as it will reach its culmination at the end of the kingdom. Now we're going to skip Ephesians 3, but if you want to see that mystery age developed by Peter or by uh, Paul, go and read Ephesians 3. What John is talking about here, the light that is already dawning, Peter picks up in his second epistle. We have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to Pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Remember the light of God's word that reveals that as we walk in his will, as we understand that revelation by his word, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts, until the accomplishment of that light comes in the kingdom. The light of his resurrection is already shining. And it is also what we look forward to. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and the lamb will be in it. His bond servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Remember, this is eternal life that they know God. God. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him, obey. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night. They will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. They will reign forever and ever. This is our future. This is what we have to look forward to. But this is also already begun in the present. Because we already possess the eternal life that he has given to us. We already possess the Holy Spirit by which we can be empowered to obedience. The only question is, will we depend on our flesh or will we depend on the Spirit? As we depend on the Spirit, we will grow in deeper intimacy with him. We read his word to know his will. And we determine beforehand to do it whatever it may be. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gift of eternal life that you have given us through your Son, and that it is not just a future expectation, though it is a future guarantee. It is also a present experience. We pray that we might all grow in deeper understanding of who you are, of what your will is, and that the Spirit might empower us all to walk by means of the Spirit. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.